This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi from Princeton University. Today I'm here to talk to Professor Alexis Wick, the author of The Red Sea in Search of Lost Space, published by University of California Press in 2016. Alexis Wick is Associate Professor of History at the American University of Beirut. By discussing this book, we will explore the Red Sea, which has, from time immemorial, been one of the world's most navigated spaces in the pursuit of trade, pilgrimage, and conquest. This book brings alive a dynamic Red Sea world across time, revealing the particular features of a unique historical actor in the Ottoman Empire and the Indian Ocean world. In capturing this heretofore lost space, it also presents a critical conceptual history of the sea, leading the reader into the heart of Eurocentrism. The sea, it is shown, is a vital element of the modern philosophy of history. Welcome, Ali, to New Books in the Indian Ocean world, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Thank you for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to to be here. Pleasure to have you. Uh, would you like uh, to say a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in Ottoman history and in, in the Indian Ocean world and the Red Sea, um, and if you had any influence as mentors along the way. Uh, sure. Um, and indeed, in, in many ways, although this is a very uh, academic book, obviously, it also, uh, I realized subsequently, was also a very personal story. I grew up in Palestine, um, a land, uh, as you know, which is slotted between uh, the Eastern Mediterranean and the and the Red Sea. And... Um, uh, and I went to both uh, of these seas very much and very often, uh, sorry, as a, uh, in my youth. Um, then I, I eventually left and studied uh, in the United States for my undergraduate studies, um, then sometime in France. Uh, and finally, uh, I went to, I moved to New York and Columbia University for my PhD um, studies. Uh, as an undergraduate already, I majored in, in history, uh, writing a, a thesis on Palestine. 
Uh, and then I did a, a degree also in Paris in African history. And, um, uh, but of course, uh, most influential, no doubt, was my uh, graduate curriculum at uh, Columbia University, uh, where I eventually uh, settled on uh, on Ottoman on an Ottoman uh, specialization, and uh, and uh, was led to uh, study the history of of uh, the sea and the Red Sea in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how how did the book idea develop? Uh, if you can share with us the research process, the writing experience. Hmm. Um, well, uh, this is something I, I, I talk about quite candidly, actually, in the book itself. Uh, also, uh, like many others, I was really uh, attracted to the um, potential of the sea or sea-centered history to offer new paths uh, for historical research. Uh, this was, uh, I was, again, I was not uh, alone in this. Uh, in the early 2000s, this was a very um, fashionable, let's say, um, approach. The idea that maritime history and sea-centered histories uh, could offer something uh, new and innovative and different from uh, from the from other uh, types of history. Uh, of course, um, Mediterraneanist historians were trailblazers, uh, but scholars of uh, other regions and other seas uh, had also followed suit. Many different seas had obtained had gotten their his- histories written and had their historians, except uh, for the Red Sea. And and yet it seemed to me that the Red Sea uh, presented presented itself as an ideal uh, historical subject and a subject of history in the full sense. Um, So I went to the Ottoman archives, having trained as an Ottomanist, I went to the Ottoman archives with the idea of writing a holistic uh, account of the Red Sea in the manner of the great French historian uh, of the Mediterranean, Fernand Brodel. Um, But it was during the research and then the writing uh, that the project was transformed um, beyond recognition in many ways, uh, and that the book uh, eventually took the the uh, the form and the appearance that it does um, now. Uh, simply put, uh, what I discovered in the Ottoman archives, first and foremost, is that the Ottomans did not call this space um, the Red Sea, not until the mid-19th century, that is. Uh, and indeed that they did not conceive of that space as a coherent uh, constituted region, uh, as we think of it now as AC. Um, and so uh, the challenge then for me was uh, how to 
think through that um, discovery uh, genuinely uh, and uh, and think through it. Mm-hmm. And, and in the book, you unpack that more in the introduction, history at sea, space, and the other. In the introduction, um, uh, you really push the, the, the reader to think about the analytical possibilities of the Red Sea. So if you can elaborate on these uh, possibilities to think about space and the making of historical and scientific objects, why is it important to pose this question? Mm. Uh um, well, uh, my contention, I guess, is that um, uh, maritime history and the history of the Ottoman Red Sea is relevant to more than uh, a small subfield uh, of a specialist uh, historical writing. You know, um, indeed, what I was, what I'm putting forward is that this absence of the Red Sea that I had. Uh, that gap in the historical literature uh, is not innocent. The gap that I sought to just fill with the proper historical account of the Red Sea is not actually innocent, but tells us something more profound about the historical discipline uh, more largely. And through the, the Red Sea and a reflection on the 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 Red Sea in the Ottoman period, um, one actually reaches uh, indeed uh, central questions of the discipline uh, more more largely, and uh, philosophy of history uh, and other disciplines, in fact, uh, too. So uh, why why should the the Ottoman Red Sea be uh, of interest beyond a, a narrow subfield, uh, or it's what I'm 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 submitting to to the reader readers is uh, is that it forces us to think about about space and how space uh, interacts and of course. Geography uh, impacts and interacts with history, and my point of departure uh, is uh, is to echo uh, the French philosopher uh, Merleau-Ponty that space is not quote the setting real or imagined in which things are arranged, but the means whereby the pos- positing of things becomes possible. And so I think the, 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 the research that I uh, ended up doing posed the question of space and history, which spaces uh, uh, become uh, historical and which uh, don't. Uh, over the next five chapters in the book, we encounter the sea from different dimensions. In the first chapter, the place in the middle, a geohistory of the sea. Uh, in this chapter, you write the sea into history through a Brutalian approach. What are the potentials and limitations of this approach? What are some of the human and non-human forces that shape the history of this body of water over time? Mm. That's a, a difficult question. 
um, and quite uh, quite a large one. Um, well, if you think me, of salient features, yes. Let me begin yes. with the limitations, I guess, of the approach, uh, perhaps, uh, or uh, let me formulate it uh, differently: the dangers uh, of the approaches I see them, um, and the these limitations or dangers are quite uh, uh, simply the the imposition of a uh, reified an essentialized spatial unit onto historical dynamics that are much more diverse and complicated. Um, so the most obvious symptom of, of what I'm talking about here of this reification would be um, a geographical, geographical uh, determinism or determinism more largely. The idea that geography and the environment wholly determine the historical process under study. And this, I think, there is some danger in a Baudelian or a geohistorical approach to push uh, too much in that um, direction. That said, uh, the, it also, as, uh, as uh, you might uh, presume, I think it also has great uh, potential. And this is something that... Uh, Others also have often uh, argued, um, many in the field of thalassology, this uh, oceanic turn in the discipline, it has the potential of thinking beyond the state, uh, beyond anachronistic political or cultural boundaries. Um, it also uh, offers the potential of um, thinking uh, outside of the anthropocentric uh, bias of conventional history. In this sense, geography, geology, fauna, flora, uh, all of these climate, um, all of these dimensions uh, end up playing as important a role uh, as the more conventional domains of historical inquiry, uh, military, diplomacy, uh, economy, etc. Um, and I think that actually offers great, of course, potential to disrupt the, uh, the, the, the presentist assumptions that we tend to uh, take for granted, uh, the nation state being an, an, an obvious uh, example. Uh, as for the, the salient uh, features of the Red Sea, um, there, there are, are many. It's a really quite extraordinary uh, space uh, in and of itself, uh, in fact. Um, but I want to, I would maybe uh, outline two clusters. Um, one is that it's... Uh, a pe peculiar and exceptional space because it uh, it contains in its very uh, being, let's say, a startling paradox. It uh, it is very inhospitable to human settlement because of various geological and geographical and climactic reasons, and yet it was always it always it had to be uh, populated, including with uh, significant cities and towns. 
it was, and so that's a paradox that that it struggles with throughout uh, in the long durée. It was very difficult to navigate, and yet for a number of uh, reasons, it had to be sailed constantly. Again, a difficult paradox that it struggled with throughout. It was in absolute need of of boats for that navigation, and yet it has very little sources of very few sources of uh, timber and wood. Uh, so I think in that sense, it's a really exceptional and quite interesting uh, space in and of itself. The other um, uh, cluster of uh, features that I would highlight uh, is what one historian has described as um, the uh, triple cosmic metronome uh, that that uh, that governs its uh, its movement across time. Let's say one uh, one uh, followed the. Um, the sun and agricultural cycles uh, and trade, therefore, across the seas according to uh, agricultural cycles. Another uh, rhythm, cyclical rhythm, uh, that governed uh, movement in the area was the wind regimes that uh, facilitated navigation uh, in the sea, and notably, of course, the the southern uh, in the southern part of the sea, the monsoon winds that attached the southern Red Sea to the Western Indian Ocean and navigation in the Indian Ocean more largely, and finally, of course, uh, the presence of the uh, Haramain, the holy cities, if you like of Islam and the yearly uh, metronome of the pilgrimage, uh, which is, of course, incumbent on any able uh, Muslim, which defined that area and that space quite uh, uh, markedly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you for offering this beautiful overview of the Red Sea. Um, In the second chapter, we move into the historical times, and you take on to two targets. In the chapter, uh, Philosophy ala Turka, Six Thesis on the Philosophy of History. Uh, what are some of the historiographical interventions that this chapter achieves in critiquing Ottoman historiography and philosophy of Oceanic history? Um, uh, well, without getting into uh, too many details, uh, this is the chapter precisely that explores the question that I evoked uh, a little earlier. Uh, which is uh, the following. Uh, is the absence of the Red Sea from, uh, from historical attention as a, an integrated uh, subject innocent uh, or uh, 
coincidental, in a sense, accidental? Or does this gap, does this absence reveal a set of um, deeply embedded assumptions in our craft, in, our, in the way we, we, we write history, and Ottoman history in particular, uh, that, the, that prevented uh, the very idea of the history of the Red Sea from emerging. Uh, and in this chapter, I outline six broad clusters uh, that, uh, that seek to show that indeed this absence of the Red Sea, despite its obvious um, candidacy <laughs> as a historical actor, um, was not uh, accidental but was due to uh, historiographical and, uh, and methodological uh, features of uh, the discipline. One of them, for example, and it goes from, from the, the, the macro, let's say, to the micro, uh, one of them being this assumption, this long-standing assumption of, that associates Europe with uh, the sea and maritimity, and uh, by contrast, Islam uh, more largely, and the Ottoman Empire in particular, with um, landedness, uh, indeed with the desert in the more crude uh, versions. Uh, another, uh, Another obstacle to the historical becoming of the Red Sea is this paradigm of provisionism that has dominated uh, Ottoman uh, historiography. The idea that the Ottoman state was simply obsessed with provisioning the army and the capital city above all other uh, uh, activities. Uh, another feature, for example, is the opposition between the Arab and the African, which I think has been nefarious to thinking of the Red Sea as a coherent whole, uh, since it is seen as uh, uh, splitting the an Arab world from an African world. Um, and and the, and it's these types of uh, of uh, questions that I that I get through uh, in uh, in six clusters in total in the chapter. Mm-hmm. And I find that's very useful uh, to integrate Ottoman historiography into the Indian Ocean by problematizing these relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, in chapter three, uh, self-portrait of the Ottoman Red Sea, June twenty first, seventeen seventy seven. You take on an interesting uh, historical exercise. Uh, can you tell us about the document that you analyze in this chapter in an exegesis, as you call it? What does it tell us about how the Ottomans conceptualize this maritime space? What are some of the, as you call it, various specialities and temporalities embedded in the content and form of that document? Um, well, the, the document itself is... Um is in fact an entry like all the others 
in a uh, quite uh, famous and much used uh, collection of documents in the Ottoman uh, archives, the Muhime uh, Imesir registers. Uh, it is from the ninth, ninth volume of that uh, that series, uh, and the series basically is a collection of that gathered. Uh, um, documents or uh, information of the important affairs relating to the uh, province of Egypt writ large, uh, including mainly commands or copies, of course, of commands sent from Istanbul to administrators uh, in the in the region, um, and it's a uh, uh, a in a way, quite trivial document by an unnamed scribe uh, buried in uh, one of the volumes of these uh, numerous uh, defters uh, in the Ottoman archives. My um, challenge in in that uh, chapter uh, and the was. Uh, can can we attempt to write a history outside of the um, hegemonic uh, weight of Eurocentric space and time? If the, in other words, if the Ottomans did not speak of the Red Sea as the Red Sea, if they, they did not conceive of the space as a coherent whole, how can we write a, a history of the Ottoman uh, Red Sea, taking Ottoman documents seriously in their plenitude, not simply as a mine of data? And my methodological uh, suggestion is that uh, is one that uh, others have pioneered, uh, a method of over-reading or slow-reading or deep-reading. Uh, and my argument is that we should uh, practice this form of reading even on the most trivial um, documents, not merely uh, on the great uh, canons of, of high culture, but also a short entry, a fairly short entry in a uh, common register of Ottoman documents can contain, if we read it uh, uh, sympathetically enough and closely enough, contains an entire universe in, uh, in itself. And uh, so the entry, uh, in fact, consists of a, essentially an order on the part of Istanbul uh, for the Egyptian, the administrators in Cairo, to purchase uh, ships uh, at Suez in order to replace uh, ships that had been destroyed and that belonged to um, a waqf, a charitable endowment, which was dedicated to um, provisioning the Hejaz with foodstuffs, 
and sustaining the population of the Hejaz on in the name of um, the Ottoman elite and Ottoman sultans and whatnot. Uh, but what I was struck by as I'm reading the document is how uh, verbose and longer it was uh, than, than the order, the command in itself uh, warranted. Uh, the command could have been, you know, uh, written in, in two sentences. Instead, it goes into a deep elaboration in order to um, to formulate this command fully. And uh, through a close reading of this entry, I... Um, I seek to to reveal uh, how that space, which we call the Red Sea, but which was not thought of as such uh, at the time, how that space was conjured in the uh, writings of uh, the Ottoman elites between Istanbul and Cairo. And in that writing appears... Um, a certain a, a, a whole range of uh, temporalities uh, from the the um, the kind of long time of natural causes that evoke, uh, for example, the difficulty of navigation on the sea between Suez and Jeddah, but also the long time uh, and the necessity, almost supernatural, or at least um, divinely inspired necessity to uh, sustain the population of the Hejaz that was such a great source of legitimacy for uh, for the Ottoman um, government and the Ottoman sultan. But also specialities uh, expand like an accordion uh, through the reading, bringing in uh, wider spaces, notably in the Indian Ocean, uh, but also uh, the Eastern Mediterranean uh, and beyond in a variety of, of ways. Does that make uh, sense? The, yes, uh, I find this very enjoyable chapter, to be honest. And I find it really Thanks. useful for anyone who would want to engage with such a reading. Uh, you follow up that uh, by venturing into the colonial age. Uh, in the age of high imperialism in chapter four, the scientific invention of the Red Sea. How was the Red Sea produced as a scientific object in the 19th century? And what are the ramifications of that process? Oh, um, that's a good question and a difficult one again. Uh, in short, which I seek to uh, uh, explore uh, in depth in the in that uh, chapter, uh, the short is um, well what you what you evoked in your question the age of uh, of imperialism and a new uh, form of imperial encounter um, and it uh, it involved in the case of the Red Sea um, and and indeed elsewhere it involved it was part of a wider story of the expansion of uh, of British power. In, uh, in the region and indeed uh, across the globe. But in the Mediterranean in particular, 
in the Ottoman Empire, and of course, most importantly, for the British, no doubt, uh, in India and the Indian Ocean. Um, and my argument is that the Red Sea was uh, captured textually even before any of its shores were subjected to um, to any form of uh, colonial control. Although, of course, this is placed in the context of um, the the rivalry between France uh, and Britain in in the in the region following the uh, French conquest of Egypt in 1798. Of but uh, the, the basic argument uh, is that the Red Sea was turned into a scripted and legible space in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, and this, this, uh, this transformation was... Uh, indeed, very explicitly uh, seen as a uh, as a precursor or facilitator to the spread of British commercial and um, military and colonial power in uh, the region. Indeed, um, and a crucial to this uh, story, of course, is that it was this new. Um, uh, new formulation of space and of the Red Sea as a discrete space was articulated and couched in the language of science and of objectivity. And indeed, uh, what is hailed as the first systematic scientific charting of the Red Sea, uh, Moresby and Elwan's sailing directions for the Red Sea, which I also um, uh, subject to um, a, a, a close reading in that chapter, uh, preceded the British occupation of Aden uh, by just a few years. And I think that's not accidental uh, at all. The ramifications you asked about uh, are extensive, and we could discuss these uh, at multiple levels. Uh, but simply to give you a sense of the of things, uh, the it is at in this period or in the wake of this process that uh, the Ottomans um, and or that the category the Red Sea. Bahri Ahmer or Kizildanese or Al Bahr Al Ahmer in emerges in uh, in Ottoman and Arabic discourse. It had been practically non-existent before. There were other names, of course, which I explore in the book. Uh, Bahri Suez was the uh, most common appellation in Ottoman, uh, but there were others, many others, and that's part of the argument. In the mid-19th century, after this wider transformation, uh, the uh, Ottomans and, and other, others around uh, the shores begin using the category 
the Red Sea and begin thinking to think about that space as a coherent whole. Mm-hmm. And this is really adds to the literature on colonial knowledge production uh, and the process of colonization. And most of that has been done on land, but you've taken that to see. Um, and then the last chapter, uh, you call it Philosomnia, Modernity and the Sea. What do you mean by Philosomnia? And what do we gain by genealogically tracing the seas and the oceans as analytical and spatial units? What are the ontological implications of your findings on the way different disciplines, and in particular history, conceptualize and write about these spatial units? Mm. Uh, Thalassomania is a is a, a reference to to the to the unexpected uh, centrality and importance, actually, that the sea uh, and maritimity. Uh, have in uh, in modern European philosophy of history, uh, and this, in a way, is the uh, is the primary uh, discovery uh, and revelation of this chapter. Um, it shows, contrary to what uh, what is usually said about sea-centered histories and thalassology, that it is new, that it is recent, uh, that it is um, politically neutral, etc. All of the uh, of those uh, the, the potentialities that we discussed at the very beginning of our discussion here. Um, in fact, uh, it shows, this chapter shows that the that the legwork that went into the production of the sea as a, a, an important and coherent historical space uh, came well, well before Fernand Brodel. Indeed, it, uh, it uh, traces this centrality of the sea well into the uh, heart. figures of um, European uh, modern thought uh, and philosophy of history uh, mobilized the idea of the sea in their uh, projects. Um, and I'm speaking here of, of, the, of the most famous of these figures, Grotius, Adam Smith, uh, Hegel, Ritter, and many others. Um, and what it identifies, and I think this is where the, the, the stakes uh, lie, uh, perhaps most importantly, uh, and what you, uh, what you evoke as the ontological implications of it all, uh, what it shows is that there has been from the early uh, evocations of this question, an intimate uh, identification of the sea with with Europe, and essentially of of this maritimity, this relationship to to the sea as being peculiar 
to uh, to the European and a key to understand the uh, the what the so-called European miracle or the European um, exceptionalism or European exceptionalism uh, and thus the the implications of this uh, of this uh, research um, places once again returns the question of, of maritime history and the sea to the to the center of our craft and our discipline more largely because of this this crucial aspect of maritimity as an ingredient as an essential ingredient in the ubiquitous eurocentrism of the modern disciplines including history and uh, geography uh, and and the, the and in in more detail and more specifics this involves uh, obviously the colonial dimensions of modern thought, thought uh, more largely. Uh, in your conclusion, you call it rigging the historian's craft for an, an epistemology of composition. Uh, I would like to ask you, um, it has been 40 years since your book was released, and you have received uh, different feedbacks and reviews of it. Um, how did you see the, uh, the book's impact, and what sort of impact would you like it to have, let's say, on historians and other people engaged with the question of the sea? Um, I mean, more in 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 general, I guess, or in the most uh, abs- at the most abstract, uh, I I would hope that it uh, pushes us to pay more attention to uh, to the words and the concepts that uh, govern. Our uh, craft and our writing, both uh, the in the sources that we use and in the uh, compositions that uh, that come out of us. Um, of course, this is uh, more specifically an intervention, in a way, in uh, Ottoman history. Uh, and of course, uh, I uh, see it as being in specific conversation with a number of arguments in Ottomanist uh, historiography. Uh, that said, it is also where I see it uh, as an intervention uh, that uh, that is also a plea for uh, Ottoman history to get out of its shell and engage in conversations with other fields and indeed other disciplines. So I hope that you know students and scholars of um, of other areas and other approaches, the Indian Ocean, uh, the Mediterranean, uh, Africa, the history of science, history of colonialism, history of law. Uh, will find it uh, engaging and uh, um, and um, enter in conversation uh, with it. Mm-hmm. The book is really of utility for a wider audience that wants to think about 
uh, how do we constitute regions and what are the problematic in doing that kind of work? Um, well, we've taken a lot of your time and as much as I would like this conversation to keep going, I would like to ask you, what are you working on now? Can you tell us about your current and future projects or what you hope to work on? Sure. Um, well, I continue uh, to be interested in the relationship between uh, place uh, and writing or thinking, between uh, history and geography. I'm working on two uh, different, but I think complementary uh, projects that are both of which are in ways uh, emerge from this uh, research on the Red Sea. One is um, an exploration of the emergence of Europe as a, a geographical uh, concept, seen in particular from its um, Ottoman and Mediterranean edges. Uh, another parallel project uh, is uh, concerns the emergence of, of the idea of um, the Arab world and specifically uh, the Ar or Arab history as an autonomous and separate uh, field of writing and research. Uh, and then there's other little things um, <laughs> that I'm working on as well. It seems that you are really into taking on these big questions. And <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward um, to reading these works. Thank you for thank your time you. today. Uh, and thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored the Red Sea in search of lost space published by University of California Press in 2016. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.